The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, like to say a few words about Richard. Um, he's he's been involved with um, Buddhist practice for many many years, and um, I, I believe he has a, a, actually a degree in Buddhist studies, a master's degree, and he's taking teacher training now at Spirit Rock, and he um, has put together this book on samadhi. So we're very interested and curious to to spend the day and see how that, what he has to tell us. I'm sure it'll be wonderful. Um. So good morning. Um, I'm going to say a little about how the structure of the day will go. But first, I want to ask, did, there's some handouts that are right here on the corner as you walk in. Did, is there anyone who did not get a handout? I can, uh, well, it looks like they're going to get them for you. And I want to say, as you're getting these handouts, it's 15 pages, and I don't want anyone to f- feel too overwhelmed because the idea for today is there is a lot of material. And what we're going to do is, I'm going to give you the out- overview and outline in a minute for the day, is you don't have to memorize all this material. It's not meant to be like a college class. What we're going to do is we're going to go through a lot of material, and during the day I'm going to point out a few of them. I'll say this is a main point to remember. And the, the idea for the day, as a matter of fact, if you look over your, your handout, I have on the front there what I wrote out as my goals for the day. And uh, the, the main goal, which is the last one I wrote on your, on your handout, is to be supportive of all of our practices. This is, you know, it can be, if you happen to be interested in the topic, it can be an interesting sort of intellectual exercise to explore the material. I happen to find it interesting. But um, it's really, its value is how does it impact our practice. So what we're going to do today is we look at this topic, which is normally translated as concentration, this word samadhi. We'll explain more about that in a few moments. You know, there's these questions. How does it fit in with insight and mindfulness meditation? And and you'll see it turns out there's a big world out there and a lot of different ways it's talked about. And so uh, we want to, uh, my idea for the end of the day is, is by the time you leave, if, if you don't already feel this way, is that you feel some clarity about, oh, I think I have a pretty good understanding now of kind of the, the range of ways it's talked about. And rather than being more confused, feeling like, and I can see how that fits into the particular way I want to practice. Or, or, so that's the main goal, and I've written some more goals out there for you. So um, the way the day will go today is we'll have, we will have a, uh, an hour lunch break. Uh, hopefully that's enough time for people. Uh, we'll check in and see if people need any more, but I hope that's enough. We'll have a, a short break during the morning and the afternoon. And um, the, the day, the, so the morning is, I've roughly broken the morning up into, the, the day up into two pieces that, the afternoon builds on the morning, but it's, each can be a little bit self-contained. Um, this morning, we're going to look at this topic of concentration, samadhi is this word. I'm going to stop using concentration in a, in a bit and just use the word samadhi. Uh, how it's presented in the foundational texts that are the source texts 
in the insight, vipassana, or mindfulness, Theravada Buddhist tradition. And I'm going to give just a five or ten minutes of history to start off this morning so you understand the context for that. And we'll sort of look, because it turns out there's not just one group of one text and not just one way it's taught. So we'll, we'll look at that. And then when we get to the afternoon, then we'll actually look into some of the very, I, I call them disagreements or maybe controversies that are out there. And I won't explain what they all are now, but uh, it turns out different teachers are saying different things and they don't line up and agree with each other always. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll um, take a look at some of those various views. And the other thing is there will be some practice periods during the day. And so we'll say more about that. It's not just sitting here talking. If you have any questions at any time, what I would request is that you just raise your hand if I'm in the middle of talking any time. Just raise your hand and, and we'll, that the way it will work the best. Okay? Um, I'd like to actually start off and read something that Jack Cornfield said that I thought was very, to set the context for the day, that I thought was very important. And this was from an interview that Jack gave on this topic of samadhi. And he was asked about uh, the, the big, the, the wide range of ways that, um, that things are taught. And um, he, uh, he was acknowledging that there's, there's not one right way. And what he says is this. Any practice that cultivates mindfulness <clears throat> and wise effort and investigation and joy and concentration and calm and equanimity and compassion will bring one to liberation. And there are many, many ways to do this. This understanding of this mandala of skillful means is enormously helpful for us as we bring all the Buddhist traditions together in America. We are learning about Theravada and Mahayana and Vajrayana understandings of Samadhi and comparable Hindu practices as well. And they are all being presented to the same greater community of practitioners in America. If we don't have the understanding of the mandala of skillful means, then we get fixated on our views. We believe we have the right way and we lose wisdom. The maturity and wisdom of a human being comes when it is possible to see multiplicity, paradox, and complementary differences with a spacious mind and an open heart. Then I'm going to skip through here. And he said, and then Jack was asked, of course there are those who will say that's well and good, but there really is a right way that we do need to understand. That other paths might be good in certain ways, but they might actually not be leading to what the Buddha was talking about. And Jack said, that's the conservative position. But in fact, if you go back to the old countries of Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka, you can't get the Theravada masters themselves to agree. I have heard so many masters say, I teach the true way right from the suttas, from the original. This is the real way the Buddha taught. I've heard a whole bunch of masters say that, and yet they contradicted one another when they said it. So I don't buy it. That's called ignorance. 
The real freedom is what Ajahn Chah understood. The real freedom is the freedom of letting go. It's not the freedom of clinging to what one believes is historically true, because what is historically true is this mandala, and it's not one way. So I just really appreciated the way he put that, and I just want, I think that's to set the tone for today, because as we're going to see, we're actually going to look in a lot of detail at the range of ways that this topic on concentration and samadhi is taught. And we want to be careful and keep in mind that there's not one way. And the important thing, it it seems to me that um, people have come to deep levels of awakening or enlightenment, practicing in a, a wide range of ways. And if we look just into, if you hang around a place like this, IMC, or you go up to Spirit Rock or, or many other similar centers, you know, you'll hear some teachers will, when they teach insight meditation, Vipassana meditation, for some, they'll just equate it with mindfulness. They won't talk about concentration much at all. It'll be kind of de-emphasized. And they'll just say, you know, just by being mindful, as much as you can, moment by moment, with whatever's happening in your experience, that's doing the practice. And then others will stress kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. They'll say, no, 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 you've got to get, not only do you have to get concentration, but you have to get this um, detailed, specialized states of concentration called jhana. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about what's jhana. Give you a little preview. It turns out it's not even viewed in just one way. There's actually several jhana systems out there. But people mush it all together and it gets more confusing. Um, And then um, so there's some people say you should be putting a lot of emphasis on your breath and staying with this one meditation object. And some don't give any particular emphasis to any object. It's just a huge range out there. There's people like me who are kind of in the middle uh, somewhere would think that the concentration is useful and important, but. You know, we don't want to cling to it or say, I've got to get, you know, you want to also just be present with whatever's happening in your experience. So there's a big range of ways things are taught. And it's all good. The important piece is finding what works best for each of us. That's the key. So I just wanted to keep hold of that. Um, so we're going to be looking at these questions. How does concentration fit into insight meditation? I think for many of us, we'll hear that um, it's taught that mindfulness tends to be equated with insight and concentration is this other kind of practice. That was a way. And that is one way we'll see in the text that it's taught. However, there's, if you go back to some of the, real, the earliest, earlier texts, it's not separated out that way. In fact, uh, mindfulness is a practice meant to lead to states of insight and concentration. It's all synthesized into one practice and they don't separate them out much. So we'll, we'll see all that in detail. We're going to try and delve into the material without being too academic or scholarly about it. So just by definition, there's a certain amount of, I mean, we are dealing with material, but we want to keep it accessible Practice-oriented. So any, just for that intro, any question or comment?
Okay. So then what I'd like to do, I think we're, we're going to probably not sit for another at least 45 minutes. So we're going to do some more talking for a bit and then we'll switch and do a, do a sitting period. So a little, um, a little background. Um, so back in the earlier mid-70s when Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg had come back from Asia and started teaching in this country, they had practiced with a, ray, a lot of different teachers in Asia. But the way they actually started teaching is in a style that's heavily influenced by one particular Burmese master, he's no longer alive, named Mahasi Sayadaw. Very important figure. And that, one, just from historical, I don't want to say accident necessarily, but from just those historical reasons, that Mahasi style has become, it's been influenced by many other influences have come in uh, over the years, but still, to a great extent, that style has become kind of the American, or the, not just America, but in the West, the insight meditation movement. Well, it turns out that's just one little style out of a big, big range. It could have been they'd happened to have been with some master in Thailand that was more influential, and our whole scene would look completely different. So we're going to take a look, actually, at that and where that Mahasi, turns out, comes out from a very particular style. So I have to take, I'll try to do it in five minutes, but a little bit of history to understand the context for today. So within, um, within a few centuries after the, uh, yeah, this is not in your notes. Within a few centuries after the uh, Buddha died, tradition tells us that there had been 18 distinct Buddhist schools had evolved. And just, you know, they would, people would travel and it wasn't like today where you didn't have internet or instant communication. And, you know, if, even if you lived a few hundred miles away, you know, you could be a little isolated and the, the understanding of the teachings would be a little different. And they didn't, some of the differences weren't that great and some of the differences were, but 18 different schools. For various reasons, all of those 18 schools died out except for one, which is Theravada Buddhism, which is the style of Buddhism practiced primarily in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, I don't know, maybe Laos, Cambodia. Yeah, I don't, well, that's hard to say when you say original because we, so we don't actually know, but so for example, this is getting off a little bit, but so roughly a hundred years, we'll say, we don't know exactly, after the, the Buddha died, there was what was called the, the first great schism. Hi, welcome, and there's a handout there. Um, yeah. And what happened is there was some disagreements, I won't go into the detail about what they were, but of whether to, basically it was whether to stick with the, the understanding of the teachings, the more conservative position, or whether to bring in some innovations. And so people split off, and there was roughly what we now call uh, Mahasangika, the Great Assembly, and the whether it was called Theravada in Pali or uh, actually I think it was the Viravada was the maybe the Sanskrit, and it went in these two directions. So anyway, when we say um, 
when we say of those 18, only one survived, we're talking about the early Buddhist schools. Of course, there was the whole Mahayana tradition that we're not getting into today of the whole Tibetan and all Chinese Buddhism and Zen and all that stuff uh, evolved later too. But uh, of the early schools that can trace their origins back, their existence back to within a century or so of the Buddha, few centuries of the Buddha, only the Theravada has survived. That doesn't mean it's more authentic or right, but it's just, that's just... And so they preserved their teachings in the Pali language, P-A-L-I, Pali language, and uh, other of the early schools preserved their language in Sanskrit. So, yes? I think it's voice acting. So we don't actually know exactly what the Buddha said or how he practiced. Is that correct? That's correct. So what we would say is that, um, and also you have to realize that, and as I was going to just mention, that this, this, this Pali, t- the teachings were uh, passed down in, in an oral tradition for several centuries, maybe three, four, five hundred years even before they were written down. So some people would say, well, gee, that's like, that's as if the Buddha lived at the time when the, you know, the pilgrims landed in this country or something. And now today we're first just writing it down. So it's true. It's things can change. And, and there's no doubt that things were added and embellished and all of that. Um, I talked to a scholar of early, the early Buddhist schools, and he said that if you look back at the writings that are preserved of the early schools, even the ones that don't exist, we have some places fragments or in some of the schools, not 100%, but a lot of substantial amount of the texts are preserved, that the, the, there's differences, but it, essentially they're the same as far as the core teachings are in there. And so I said, well, that gives us a lot of uh, confidence that at least we know what the teachings were back to the time, maybe up to that first hundred years before that first split happened, that, that probably to that point, the, things, the same teachings they split off. He said, well, most people think that's probably true, but it's not 100% because it could be that one of the schools later on innovated and added something, and then one of the other schools might say, oh, well, we've got that too, you know, and, and maybe add it in. So we don't know for sure. Um, but there is a consistency of the teachings, and, and um, so we have some confidence. It's not hopeless. Um, I, think, I think we get less confidence if we try to be specific, as this is exact words or, and that kind of thing. And there's some places in there that seem pretty obvious that there were things added. So, and also we can put the teachings into practice, which is when it, and uh, people seem to have come to great depths of awakening by applying these teachings, so I think that's the good news. So, um, okay, now after the, so now we're focusing on this Pali language tradition, which is Theravada Buddhism. So the tradition tells us that within a, probably within the first few months after the Buddha died, there was what was called the first great council. And that's important because um, the, uh, many of the monastics came together who had been around for all these years with the Buddha to recount the teachings and come to agreement on this is what the teachings were. And um, Ananda had been the Buddha's, it was the Buddha's younger cousin and had been the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life. And he had been there, so for all these teachings, 
And so he was the main one, according to the tradition, who was asked about all this. And he, uh, as a matter of fact, if you read the suttas today, many of them start with, thus have I heard. That's Ananda speaking, recounting the story. Uh, so the discourses or the teachings of the Buddha as preserved then evolved in what's called the suttas. And that's the sutra is the word you may have heard in Sanskrit and Pali, it's sutta. And those are the teachings. There's other pieces like the monastic code and other things that came out of that also. But it's these suttas that we're going to be looking at. They are considered in Theravada Buddhism to be the foundational. They're the scriptures. They're the core texts. So we want to go back and look and say, well, what, is the, what, is the, what are the suttas actually saying? Regardless of whether it's what the Buddha's words were, if it's changed, it's certainly what the tradition is, is telling us. So we want to know that these suttas. Um, now, uh, a, a body of commentarial literature also arose over the centuries because if you look in the suttas, we'll see there's places in there that some places it's clear, but there's a lot of places that are open to interpretation. Right? And so... Um, people naturally wanted to try to understand the teachings to, their, to the best understanding. So commentaries were, were written, Pali commentaries, to explain what the suttas were there. And what's important, this is one of those key things to remember. Uh, for those who, who came later, I, you don't have to remember everything, but I'm going to point out a few main uh, things to remember. About 900 years, roughly, after the Buddha... This treatise was written that kind of pulled together the understanding of the commentaries into one work. And it's a very, very important work. So it's a long name. If you don't remember it, don't worry, although you're going to hear it a lot today. So by the end of the day, it'll stick in your mind. It's called the Vasudhimagas with a V. Vasudhimaga means path of purification. It's in your notes. Yes. Did they not have the written word after the at the time of the Buddha? Why why were they orally transmitted? Well, writing did exist, so I can't tell you the exact reasons why they were orally transmitted, but they were orally transmitted. It, the, the, the suttas were not written down, and I think it was in Sri Lanka, so it must have been maybe five hundred years. One of the reasons Gill said for the reason for the oral tradition was uh, reading was part of the aristocracy, and so the common person could always chant it. That's the way the original Buddhist or the Buddha himself wanted it. Yeah. So that's interesting. And also keep in mind that um, they didn't have printing presses back then. Now, they may not have been thinking in this way, but so uh, hand transcription was very prone to error. And the way they would chant together, they would chant in groups, which still happens today. And so, um, and people would take responsibility for memorizing different sections, and so they would chant as groups. So probably it was a decent way of preserving the teaching. You know, if, if 40 of us are together in a group, and one person, you know, we can keep everybody on track if, if one person forgets a piece. So these commentaries were also developed. I don't know how, if it was oral written. I don't know if we even know the answer on some of that, when they were how they originally evolved. But this Vasudhimaga 
uh, is not a commentary, it's a treatise in the tradition of the commentary. And it basically pulls the commentarial understanding of the suttas together into one. I, I meant to bring the book, but I forgot. But it's a big, thick thing. It's probably on the bookshelf in there. So maybe two, three, four inches thick. I mean, it's big. Okay. The reason the Vasudhimaga is so important is for many Theravada Buddhism, Buddhists, the entire understanding of the path of practice is funneled through the lens of the Vasudhimaga. And in fact, um, if you go now, I'm going to, this, what I'm about to say is a gross generalization. But if you go to Burma, for example, the Vasudhimaga is extremely influential. Less so in Thailand and Sri Lanka. So there are plenty of people out there who think, oh no, if you want to understand the suttas, you've got to read the, you've got to understand the Vasudhimaga. You can't under, really understand what they're saying. And then there's lots and lots of other people out there. I happen to be in the second camp I'm about to describe, but there's people who are, you know, esteemed meditation masters and scholars, you know, monastics, you know, who are much more qualified to say than I am, who say, no, 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 the Vasudhimaga just got it wrong. I'll give you a little heads up today because uh, what I did in writing this book is um, I sort of I tried to step back and say, okay, wait a minute, let's just pretend that the Vasudhimaga doesn't exist and let's just look in the suttas, take the material on its own, and see can we make some sense of it? What, what is it saying? Where are the places that? And that's what we're going to look at today on its own. Then we're going to put the suttas aside as if it doesn't exist and just look at the Vasudhimaga on its own. Say, what is it saying? Turns out they're two completely different systems. There's not a right or wrong, but they're different. That's what I'm saying. What I'm, that's a controversial statement, by the way. But you'll see today why I'm saying it, and you can make your own judgments. We're going to actually go and look. But they're different. <laughs> and it's just, you can interpret the suttas in light of the Vasudhimaga, but you have to twist yourself into a, a logical pretzel to do it. It's like you could say that uh, the universe, rev- everything revolves around the earth, right? The sun. You can make the math work, but from what I understand, it's just horrendous. But mathematically, it, you know, it, but when you finally realize what's actually happened, there's no center to the universe and everything. All the math just simplifies and it's elegant. It all falls into place. I would say that's probably a good analogy to the Sudimaga. <laughs> now, yes. So with that analogy, do you find that the suttas tend to make everything elegant? No. And the Visuddhimagga not, or vice no, versa? No, and actually what I was just about to say is that the, um, in fact, w- where the, the suttas are often vague and open to a lot of interpretation, the Visuddhimagga is crisp, there's a few spots in there you'll hear what it says and you go, well, what does that mean? It doesn't make, but m- for the most part, it's very specific, very detailed, and very clear. You would expect them to do that. So that's the basic history of where all this comes from. I don't say the Vasudhimaga is wrong. I say it, I, it, it, what I'm going to propose, is, and again, because I'm saying it doesn't mean it's true, but this is where I'm coming from here today, is, and we're going to look together as a group, that there are two distinct systems in the Pali Theravada tradition. They're just different systems, and we need to understand these two systems. And then it's all good ways to practice.
There's not a right or wrong in practice because we see people. Mahasi, so here's so Mahasi comes out of the. Uh, it's pure Vasudhimaga. The insight meditation scene, if you go to Spirit Rock and the way it gets taught, that's all the Sudimaga. So we're going to look specifically at those differences and understand exactly what I'm talking about. Okay? So some, anyway. Just also one more thing looking ahead. Uh, What the Vasudhimaga does is divides meditation into two separate paths. Insight meditation, and the second thing, which is this jhana kind of meditation, we'll say what jhana is. Suttas don't separate them out. Jhana in the Vasudhimaga is a different jhana than the jhana system in the suttas. They're not the same. And one of the reasons that nobody can agree on jhanas is, is that people are mushing all these teachings together into one. And when you separate them out, it all clears up. So the reason we're going to be looking at these texts is whether people, whether teachers or students realize it or not, everything we're hearing is coming out of these, really the, some understanding of the suttas or Vasudhimaga or some blending of, the, of them. What you actually experience in your practice is not just one or the other. And that's the last important piece on the background. Um, there's quite a range of ways you might actually experience your meditation. Okay. So let's stop just for a moment. Any thoughts? People have already been asking some questions, comments. Hmm? Okay. Yes, sir. I'm trying to understand uh, what you said about. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, what you said that there are many different ways. Uh, if you look at Satipatthana Sutta, Buddha says, Bhikkhu, this is the only way. So I'm trying to reconcile yes. what you said versus right. what but, is in the So sutta. we're actually going to look at the Satipatthana Sutta today. It'll be a piece of what we're do, going to do. Um, but what I say is that, that, that phrase that's, as, that's, influ, that's translated as the only way, it's actually, it, there's, it's not clear on how it's translated. Some scholars, so the Pali phrase that's used there is interpreted to, me, to be the only way or the direct way, but not necessarily the only way. So first of all, it's not clear the meaning of the Pali right there. Uh, whether it's, but the second thing I want to say is, let's, it's fine, let's just say it says it's the only way. Um, the Satipatthana Sutta is, 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 I think the practices are laid out pretty clearly, but actually there is some places of interpretation, like how much samadhi is it talking about there, Right? So some people will say there's, it's not talking about jhana and samadhi. It's just being mindful moment to moment. Others will say satipatthana is the path to develop jhana. There's actually, we're going to see there's not one way to understand the satipatthana. Actually, the practices themselves. So we're going to take a look. But the, the importance of the satipatthana sutta in the Pali tradition, there's no question, uh, is probably, some people would say it's the most important discourse, in the, as you probably know, in, in the whole tradition. So we're going to actually take a look at, uh, at that. We'll look at another sutta called Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing, and a few others. We're actually going to look at that later this morning. Thank you. So I hope uh, as we come up again, uh, we're going to look at, I'm going to be bringing up some points I'm going to bring up, but uh, you may, I may draw some conclusions. There's going to be some places where I'm going to say, 
um, this is actually not clear and it's not it's open to interpretation. And here's the here's the various ways. There's other places where I'm going to say, I think it's pretty clear. And, you know, you might not agree with that. So we'll kick it around. And especially this afternoon when we get into the controversies, when we really look, well, are there really two paths of meditation? Insight and kind of this concentration path, or is it just one? What is jhana? Is jhana necessary for the deepest levels of realization according to the texts? Uh, You know, that's kind of a... It's not just one way. The Sunni model, once again, is to review our commentaries of which... This is, we're all talking about the Pali language tradition, Theravada Buddhism. So earlier I mentioned there were these 18 schools and they'd all died out except for that. But that was just so you understood and then forget about all those other schools, forget about Mahayana. Everything we're saying is Theravada Buddhism. Okay. So you may want to um, turn to page two in your handout. We are going to be skipping around in the handout during the day because of the flow of how I want to present the material. But this, it's, it's in a certain flow as a reference for you. So up at the top, excuse me, on the top of page two, uh, it says samadhi. The word samadhi is usually translated as concentration. That's that's what they're talking about when people say concentration in our tradition. Um, that's, I'm going to continue to use the word concentration because we all do, but actually it's not the best translation. It really means un- undistracted. So um, this is better. So, and, and what's important here, so this is what I'm about to say is one of these important points to remember for the day. This idea of of an undistracted mind, there's two main ways that it tends to be understood by various people. There may be others too, but the two main ways is it can mean undistracted in the sense that you you have what I call a narrow focus where you're, you're focused down on one object. So, for example, in your meditation, if you were, say, for example, doing breath meditation, and maybe you were paying attention to the breath at the nose, one kind of small area. If you kept practicing, other practices too, but I'm just using it as an example. If you kept practicing, your ability to concentrate would strengthen. Some of you, maybe many of you have already experienced this in your practice. I know there's some very long-time practitioners in this room. Some of you might be newer. And you would be able to stay focused more and more narrowly right there on the breath, right there on the breath. And what, and so, um, We, uh, ultimately, you could get so concentrated on, on that point of the breath, actually the term is used one-pointed, you would tend to not notice things so much, right? It's sort of like, you know, the, sort of the, the image of, what is it, you know, you're sitting at some, the, the husband's reading the paper and, at, for breakfast and the wife's saying, honey, honey, and he, he doesn't hear her because he's absorbed, that word absorption, he's so engrossed in the paper that he doesn't notice. 
That's kind of the idea, if in a way, that you can get so concentrated, say, in this example on the nose, on the breath, that every, your whole awareness is there and it tends not to be distracted off of it. So you tend to notice sounds less and less. You notice body sensations less and less. And eventually, if you took it ultimately, you, w- you would notice any, ev- the, the awareness of everything else would be gone and there would just be on a point. The mind just couldn't wander off. That's a, a, what I call a narrow focus. I also call it an exclusive because it, it excludes awareness of everything else. That's one kind of way that... There's a second way that samadhi is understood and it's kind of the opposite actually. It's the same level of stillness of mind, but rather than the... So I have to say I don't know what the word... I'm using the word mind loosely. I I don't know what the mind is. So, you know. (laughs) The awareness or the mind, the mind becomes still and unmoving, just like in that first one-pointed example. But rather than the awareness being on a point, it's actually the mind is unmoving, but the flow of experiences hasn't stopped in this case. All the experiences are still coming and going. You're not on a point. It's more of an open awareness, but just as still and equally as still and unmoving. And yet everything's known. And I call that an inclusive awareness because you haven't excluded, it's included. You get the difference in those two kinds of samadhi? This is an important distinction when we start to later understand what is jhana. And it gives you a hint already at the two kinds of jhanas that are out there. You can really experience all these different experiences. Again, this is everything we're saying is not a right or wrong because you can focus your mind more and more and get to a point. Turns out that's Vasudhimaga jhana. And you can have this open awareness that includes changing experience. This is controversial what I'm going to say, but I'm saying it's Sutta Jhana. Yes, sir. Just for the sake of discussion, would so uh, would it be inappropriate to view the first uh, view of Jhana? I mean the first view of Samadhi as concentration and the second view as mindfulness and that breaks those apart that way? Well, I wouldn't break them apart that way in the sense that I understand what you're saying and it's a good point, but the sense that if you use the word mindfulness, mindfulness is closely connected with samadhi because if you're being mindful in a moment, you're not distracted. But it's actually a different quality because the mindfulness is just the knowing or awareness in a moment. Or if you're practicing mindfulness, it's kind of paying attention on purpose in a moment, right? But we all know, for any of us who've who've tried to to practice mindfulness in daily life, if you don't have much samadhi cultivated, it's hard. Because how many of us have, say, tried to um, say, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to be mindful, say I'm driving in the car, so whatever, I'm feeling my hands on the steering wheel, or I'm whatever, I use kind of an anchor. And I'm, Next thing you know, ten hours later, you kind of wake up and realize, oh, where was I? I was trying to be mindful. We didn't have the concentration there. So mindfulness is a different quality. Um, what I would say is this, is, and so we're going to actually, exactly what you're saying, we're going to get into a lot more detail on. 
and I and come back to it if you need to. But uh, mindfulness is a quality used to develop concentration. So if you're if you want to get a narrow focused concentration, you would be mindful. You'd bring your mindfulness to the breath at a point. There's other kind of mindfulness practices also that can cultivate. So there's how do you cultivate one kind of samadhi or the other? We'll actually talk about that a little bit. For now, we're going to go back to this again uh, uh, a few times when we look at John and we look at some of the other suttas today. But can we just leave it at that for now? That, okay. All right. Um, by the way, one thing you may want to look at on your notes, there's a couple of quotes I didn't read on the first page of your notes, I realize, but you may want to go back there. Pretty important, because I'm about to just say what's on page. Uh, we're still on page two of your notes. And then we're going to say something about how important samadhi is, but just going back to the cover page of your, of your notes, look at this first quote. I considered, could jhana be the path to enlightenment? Then came the realization, that is the path to enlightenment. That's a pretty powerful statement. How does that fit in with the understanding of people who say, no, no, you don't need to worry about concentrate jhana, right? You just need to be mindful moment. So we're going to look, well, why that, that doesn't line up that well. And then the second quote on there also, which I think is pretty powerful, where the Buddha says there's five detrimental things that lead to the decay and disappearance of the true Dhamma, and reverence and deference towards samadhi is one of the, the fifth one on the list. So you may just want to notice that. Yes. Uh, you may be getting this uh, momentarily, but just from a definition point of view, um, we talked about the definition of samadhi. Uh, can you work jhana, the definition of jhana in relation to... We'll, we will do that. You will do that, okay. Yes, we're going to very spend... A, the second half of this morning, we're going to look at jhana specifically, and we'll bring the definitions of samadhi right back in okay, there. Thanks. But for now, let's just say that jhana, the word jhana, I'll just skip ahead a little bit, means to medita- meditate. That's all. And actually, as we won't get into it, but in the suttas, it actually, in a few places, it actually means a wrong kind of meditation. There's a couple of places, like where the Buddha was doing all those ascetic practices, in his early days of practice, that almost killed him. And he said, he did a wrong, he did a, a, a breathingless jhana, where he would hold his breath till he almost died and all this kind of stuff. So, but in almost all cases, jhana, which means meditate, means a, very, something very specific and it's defined specifically, as we'll see. But for now, we'll say it, it is a specific, it, it's, it's probably the peak highest, strongest level of samadhi that you can have is jhana. Samadhi culminates in jhana. The four jhanas. So, what I just want to point out with uh, on your notes there on page two where it says right samadhi. So again, there's so much detail here. We're just kind of touching on the main points. Um... Uh, 
the suttas say that right samadhi, in other words, you know, there's the eightfold path and they use the word right, right speech, right action, right livelihood, you know, this right. It, it doesn't mean right or wrong, by the way, but we use right. It just means wise and skillful would be a better. Right samadhi, the eighth element of the eightfold path, is always defined explicitly in the Pali suttas as the four jhanas. Turns out there's four jhanas. So that's one place where the suttas are clear and explicit. That's another key to tell us that samadhi and jhana are important. They're talked about over and over many, many times in the suttas and always talk, right samadhi is always the four jhanas. So that's just something to be aware of. Uh, I want to read you one quote that's not in your notes. Without the peace of concentration to a high degree, without attaining to calm, without singleness of mind, so we're going to come back to this word, singleness of mind, it cannot be that one shall enter and abide in the emancipation of the mind, in insight emancipation, free from what are called the asavas, the taints. That's, the sutta sometimes Full enlightenment is described as becoming free of these taints, these asavas, which are basically forces in the mind that keep us stuck, stuck in ignorance. There's a lot of other suttas like this that basically come out and say, unless you're really, really concentrated, you can't really. That's suttas. Sudhimaga is not going to say that. It's going to say something different. So um, we'll leave it at that, except I want to also say that I notice in the notes I use this word unification of mind. This is just terminology. Because of the different ways that, that samadhi is understood, If whenever we're talking about this, what I call exclusive, narrowly focused, one-pointed concentration, I use the word one-pointedness. Whenever we're talking about what I'm going to call this more open, where the mind is still, not the right, but you can still experience everything happening. I call that unification of mind. There are two different English words for the same Pali word, a kagata, which we're going to come back and revisit. It just means the eka is one, so being one. Okay. So, so far, there's just been a few main. Points, I just want to say them again from all this talking. There's the suttas and there's this Vasudhimaga, two different understandings, or one understanding, depending on your perspective. The word samadhi means to undistractedness, and there's two main ways it's understood by different people. Narrow focused, where you, the flow of experience stops because you can only be aware of a single point. Or open awareness where the mind stops, but experiences are still coming and going. And then right samadhi is always defined as the four jhanas, which we haven't gotten to yet. Okay? All right. You guys okay to keep going for a while before we do our first sit? I want to get to a particular point. We have several sits during the day. Okay. Um, what I want to do now is I want to skip in your notes 
because on page two it starts samadhi and important Buddhist lists. And it talks about the seven factors of enlightenment if you keep going, satipatthana sutta. We're going to come back to that. And what I'd like for you to go to now is, in your notes, to page eight. And in the middle of page eight, where it says samadhi and the Vasudhimaga. I'm skipping now because uh, the as I said earlier, the Vasudhimaga understanding is the main way that for most of us, I'm just guessing for who would come to a center like this, for most of us, the Vasudhimaga understanding is uh, what most of us have understood. So what we want to do is we're going to look at Samadhi and the Vasudhimaga without getting into jhana. Then we're going to go back to the suttas and we'll look at what's jhana in the suttas and the Vasudhimaga. And then we'll go back to the suttas and look at some of these important suttas and lists. And then later we're actually going to look then at the controversies. That's the way the day is going to flow. Okay. So the Vasudhimaga, as I said, it was written around the 5th century in the common era by Buddha Gosa. He did other works, but this was his most important work. So we know who wrote it and he, this guy wrote it. Um, as I said before, it expresses the commentarial understanding of the suttas. And just as a point of in, in, interest, I, I made a note here that um, the structure of the Vasudhimaga is based on this one discourse in the suttas, which is called the Relay Chariots Discourse. And basically the Relay chariot says, uh, sp- the path and spiritual practice, it's like a series of chariots. It's sort of like the Pony Express in, was in this country. You take w- this chariot to get to the next, that chariot gets to the next. And it lays it out, the, the, and it's called the seven stages of uh, insight or seven stages of purification. It does not give you any detail at all in the suttas. It's just mentioned as a list. That's it. It's, the, it, it's actually mentioned in a second place also as a list, but that's it. It doesn't tell you anything. So all the, uh, the, the, that's talked about of what it means comes out of the commentaries where they would come back and explain it for us. Okay. So this is a, one, of the real, one of the real important points is then that the Vasudhimaga divides the path of meditation into two distinct separate paths. What's called, and it's there in your notes, tranquility and insight. And in case you're interested in the Pali, you don't have to know the Pali, but you hear it. The tranquility is Samatha. I have it on your notes there. Samatha. It spells Samatha, but T-H is, is still pronounced as a ta sound. Tranquility or calm is Samatha. And inside is Vipassana. There's the Vipassana right there. So let's just say a little something about these two paths. Let's first look at this tranquility, this Samatha path. What happens in samatha meditation is there are the Vasudhimaga gives 40 different meditation subjects that are given, 40-40. And they're explained in a lot of detail. Um, breath meditation is one of the 40. Mindfulness of the body is one. 
But for example, that are what there's what there's ten casinas. Casinas are like there's color casinas: blue, red, yellow, white. They, people actually make these discs that are about this big, and they're smooth color, and it might be whatever blue, and you might just sit there and stare at the disc. That we, and that would be casino meditation. There's contemplations on death. There's a whole list of given of 40 that that's, we're not getting into that here. And the Vasudhi and and those are all scattered around here and there in the suttas, but there's no detail like this given. And the Vasudhi Maga lists out what attainments are possible for each different um, each different kind of practice. Some of them will get you to the first jhana only. Some of them will take you through all the jhanas. Some of them won't get you to any jhana, but they're still good to do. You know, all this kind of stuff. And it also lists in detail um, um, which type people. There's different temperaments. Are you a faithful type, a skeptical type, a intellectual type? There's these different types. And it tells you how to define what kind of type you are and everything. It goes a lot of detail. What happens in samatha, tranquility practice, is you pick one of these top, one of these objects. You put your attention exclusively on that object. So if you're doing breath meditation, you would keep the awareness, say, on the breath at the nose. And by the way, the Vasudhi Magha is explicit. Have any of you, I'm just curious, you don't have to raise your hand, but we can maybe, who've ever learned about Vipassana meditation, some of you have learned to say, pay attention to the breath at the nose. Any of you pay attention to the breath at the belly? I would expect a fair number. Yeah, a lot of hands. Half the room, right? Half of us might be nose, half belly, half whatever, right? Uh, Vasudhi Maga is clear. Nose only, not belly. As an aside, you may wonder, well, wait a minute. Mahasi Saida, Upandita, they teach down at the belly? But, they're, but they're, it's all out of the Sudhi Maga. How can they be teaching breath meditation? They're not teaching breath meditation. If you practice Mahasi style, you're actually doing four elements meditation. They'll tell you that later on, in, down the road. But anyway, unless anyone has a question, we we'll won't get into that. It's just a little aside. That's true. You look, are you, okay. I, th- I, th- I thought you were kind of going. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> so you say you would pick the, I'll just use the example of the breath. You stay with the breath. And here's an important point. Whatever meditation object you're staying with, at some point, what is called a nimitta arises in your mind. A nimitta is a sign of concentration. Right? So in the Vasudhimaga, it lists out what the sign, what the nimitta is for each of the 40. Well, actually, some of them don't have nimittas, but each of the one that have nimittas that come, it tells you what's going to be. So with the breath, you're supposed to say, get this light that appears in the mind. If any of you practice, there's a teacher out these days who's starting to get a little more well-known called Pau Ak. Pau Ak, this is what he's doing right here. He stay with the breath. He wants you to have this, start to see this light. Purely, me- it's, it's visual, but it's purely mental. It's not actually coming in through your eyes. But it's seen as if it's coming into the eyes. When that happens, the Vasudhi Maga wants you to let go of the breath, say, or the physical casino. And all your attention now, your meditation object, becomes this light. Mental. And you're, so now your practice is getting disconnected from your body. I'm not judging it. I'm just saying this is what happens. If you took it far enough, because everything's in this mental image. And eventually, if you stuck with it, 
and your concentration got strong enough, you would get your mind becomes one-pointed, narrow concentration because you don't feel your body anymore. And you would what's called absorb into, you would be so concentrated on the light that it's like you kind of just going into the light, if you will. We'll describe that a little more later. And you get into the state called jhana. So I haven't gotten into details, but this, so I, if, don't worry if you don't have all the details. We're actually going to look at the details. That makes sense? That's the path of samatha, tranquility. You get so tranquil and still. It's called the path of tranquility because everything stops. You don't feel like the changing sensations in the body anymore. You're not hearing the sounds anymore. All the change. Because you can't experience change, you can't do insight meditation, right? Because insight, which we didn't talk about, comes about by seeing deeply into the nature of impermanence, Right? Change. You have to see or changing experiences and all that kind of stuff. You have to have changing experiences so that the mind can see there, that everything's changing and then some kind of deep level of non-clinging happens. We're not getting into that much, right? So you have to come out of jhana and then switch your mind over after you've gotten to jhana to this other kind of practice called vipassana, insight meditation. You have to sort of back out of the you're still quite concentrated because you've developed your mind so much. I'm not diminishing it. I'm just saying this is the path. And then you switch over. <coughs> yes. Let's see if I can remember now what I was thinking. Um, so here you are in this concentrated state in this light i can't i can't imagine how then you move to mindfulness well when you were that looks like yeah so when you were absorbed in that state i'm using the word absorption because you're just totally engrossed in that state you're not moving actually when you're in states like that there's no doing you can't the 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 sense of i'm going to do and i'm going to but on its own when its energy has kind of, you know, the, the energy drops off and, and, the, and the person naturally might take an hour, two, three hours, or some teachers would say longer or whatever. And, 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 the, and you start to come out of the jhana. And, and then you, you have more sense of directing the, what you're doing. Right? And it might be a subtle directing, it's not, it might, it might, but there's some and then you can just... Or, or what can happen, it can be more passive. It, so it's different for people. It can be that just things kind of back off a, just a little bit and just you, the, the three characteristics can just be known more. So it's just things shift. But when you're full blast in those states, you're not talking about doing insight in those moments. And in fact, what the Vasudhimaga has you do is it wants you, you back off and then only when coming out of jhana do you reflect back on the uh, inherently unsatisfying nature of the jhana. They actually have you to say things like that they talk about. Because well, it's not permanent, which to me is kind of hokey because it's just like, it's real satisfying. <laughs> but uh, I'm trying to be a little humorous here. I'm not trying to... <laughs> um, are there... I've heard that there are different kinds of light. Yeah. Right. So the way these things actually get experienced... There's a huge range, and I want to say this, the way this nimitta actually works is 
It's any sign of concentration. So if we step out, we're going to step away from the Vasudhim. Actually, let me come back to that when we talk about the, the suttas. For now, that the main thing to know is, we're going to have plenty of time to kick it around, but let's just put that one on hold for a minute. We're just looking at the texts now, not actually as experienced. There's a gigantic range of what we can actually experience, which we could talk about. Okay, this is the path of tranquility, right? We practice, we get a nimitta, a sign, we let go of whatever, the, like the breath, and we put everything on the mental images, now the object of meditation, we stay with that, we say it's purely mental, so if we keep with it, we lose, we don't feel the body. Matter of fact, the Vasudhi Maga is explicit. You cannot feel your body in jhana. It's no interpretation of the Vasudhi Maga. It says it clearly. And people can have these experiences if you took it to that point. I don't know how many people get to that point, but you certainly can. You know, if you were to see, right, it's just like you can't hear your wife when you're reading the paper, that kind of thing. You know, if you keep, keep at it, you can't feel your body, can't hear sounds. And you're just, it's just the jhana factors which we'll describe. It's only the bliss or only the whatever. That's the whole experience. It's not even you, whatever you are, sitting there saying, wow, this is cool. I'm, you know, no, no, no. It's just bliss. And then, so that's the tranquility. The Insight path in the Vasudhimaga, the second path of Vipassana, can be taken either after having come out of jhana and switched to insight, or without ever even caring about jhana or trying to attain it or ever attaining it all. That it's just direct insight, which is that's the main style actually. If you go to Spirit Rock, if you come here, if you go to Insight Meditation Society, it's more this what's called pure in, pure insight path, right? They're not emphasizing jhana if you, if you, right, if you go sit a 10-day Vipassana retreat at Spirit Rock or if you go to Hidden Villa with Gil or whatever, right? It's, it's, not the, it's not that concentration isn't talked about, but it's not a jhana retreat, right? So we're talking about this, this is the path here of pure insight. In the text, you still want to get a certain amount of concentration, but rather than being fixed concentration, which is the kind of concentration when you've got this one-pointedness in tranquility, they define a second kind of concentration you're called momentary concentration. None of this is in the suttas, by the way. Momentary concentration, fixed concentration, all this nimittas and everything, that's all, uh, you don't find it anywhere in the suttas. Actually, nimittas in the suttas, but we'll see it's used in a different way. But there's no such thing as fixed concentration in the suttas. Um, and momentary concentration is not in the either. What momentary concentration is is that your your concentration is strengthened up to a level, which I'm going to call access concentration, which I'll describe in a minute, which is pretty concentrated, but you don't absorb into the nimitta or the jhana. You can still feel changing experience. And that's how you can then do momentary uh, insight practice. That's the basic idea of all of it. Pretty straightforward, right? We'll probably sit in about another 15 minutes. How's your brain doing? Okay? Okay. So that's the key thing to remember from all of this detail is, is that there's these two paths in the Vasudhimaga. Uh, and, and if you're doing insight after, after you've done jhana, it's still called the path of tranquility. Right? If you've done jhana, then it's, that's the, okay.
Now, it's important to know there's two other things I want to mention here. There are three levels of concentration of the Vasudhimag and three signs of concentration. You don't have to remember all this. I'm just going to mention it so you've heard it and you can kind of let it go. The first level of concentration is just called preparatory concentration. It's just when you're a beginner, you don't have it's whatever your natural level of concentration is. That's preparatory. If you keep practicing, you get to a level of concentration called access concentration. That's the level as you're getting closer to jhana. And it's characterized when this nimitta arises. Like if you, if for example, if you get that light arising in your mind, excess concentration, that's the sign that it's there. And by the way, by the time you hit excess concentration, that is, uh, the hindrances are suppressed then. So they're just not going to affect you while you're at that level of concentration. If you were doing insight meditation without doing the path of tranquility, you could de- develop uh, concentration up to excess concentration. So the momentary concentration can get up to that level of strength, although you don't have to have the... It's not called excess concentration because it doesn't have to be characterized by that light that comes. In the path of tranquility, that's the sign of excess. In the path of insight, it's, it's considered momentary is considered to be that level. But basically, it's... It's, I would say it this way, just not looking at the texts, but it's a level of concentration where it's not that the mind can never wander, not much. And when other things are happening, you're not much distracted. And if you do wander off, it's not for very much. I mean, you're pretty there. It's a level that a lot of people let's, can get to and you know, you go sit tender retreats. You, know, you could get into these kind of levels of concentration. The third level of concentration in this, so this preparatory access is, and the third level is fixed concentration, and that's that one-pointed when you're in jhana. Okay. That's just three levels of concentration. You just heard the term. And then the three signs of concentration, we won't mention them all, but basically the word nimitta, it means a sign. I think it's on your bottom of page nine. Yeah, It means a sign, it means a theme, it means a basis of something. That's all. In the uh, Vasudhimagga, it's defined very explicitly. In the uh, suttas, we'll come to that in a second. Let me just wrap up here on the Vasudhimagga. If you turn to page 10 on your notes, I didn't realize up at the top, I actually do list the 40 meditation subjects for you there. So we're going to pause and take a short stretch, uh, meditate, and then take a, a real break after the meditation in just a moment. But I just wanted to kind of what we see where we're at so far. Again, uh, there's so much detail, and we're just kind of hitting the main points, though you don't need to know all the detail. So in the, let me just say a few more things. Uh, in, the, in the suttas, then, I'm going to shift back to the suttas now. And we'll actually see in detail what I'm talking about here. 
The suttas do not. There's no, first of all, insight, vipassana meditation doesn't exist in the suttas. May, many of you may not realize this. Can't find it anywhere. Now, this isn't just my, you, you can see I kind of have my own uh, biases here, but actually, it's true. Uh, there's no such thing as insight meditation in the suttas. As a matter of fact, I had a nice conversation with Gil about this and many other people saying, is this true? It's not in everybody. Yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not in there. That's the Vasudhimaga path. Insight is, is not a verb. It's a noun. It's something you get from meditation practice in the suttas, but it's not a path of practice. And in fact, I'm going to argue that uh, the suttas, uh, there aren't two paths of practice. There's one path of practice. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to argue that the, uh, in the suttas, that the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness in, in the Vasudhimaga, mindfulness tends to get equated with insight and concentration is a different kind of practice. In the suttas, mindfulness is the practice that leads ultimately to right samadhi, which in its culmination is jhana, through which one gets insight. And we're not separating out mindfulness, concentration, and insight in the suttas. They're synthesized into one path. A reminder, and some people filtered in late too, so I'm going to say this. I I think I've only said it three or four times today. Uh, You're going to get it about ten more times today because it's so important. There's not a right or wrong to any of this. I'm pointing out where I think are real differences. What I'm saying in the Vasudhimaga is clear and explicit. You'll have to take a look as we go through and actually look in detail. Well, is it really true that they don't separate it out? This is actually a point of big controversy. So we're going to look, especially in the afternoon, about... But uh, many people, not just me, um, uh, will, will, would say, yeah, well, no, it's not two paths in there. You can find a path. You can interpret it that way. But it's not, I don't think. And so then when we look back to our own practices, we'll want to kind of see, well, how am I practiced now? And how's that work fit for me? Fine. And what, we, what we're exploring today, does it influence your practice at all? You know, maybe this path of this Vasudhimaga style, you know, obviously we have these great masters who've practiced in these different ways, so it obviously works great. Or maybe this style that integrates them into one uh, is an interesting style for you too. You can see. So we're going to take a short stretch break, but let me just hang on. But I just want to tell you one thing, and then we'll stretch, and, and I want to, and then we'll sit. In the in the uh, what I want to do in the in the meditation sessions is um, it, we're mostly going to sit silently, but just at the beginning of each, I'm just going to offer a little bit of guided instruction. And what I'm going to introduce is a style of practice that you can just experiment with if you're interested. It's just check it out. You may or may not be. If, if you're not interested, again, you, my voice will only go five minutes in the beginning. Just let it stay in the background. But I want to tell you what it is. My own practice, I've been practicing for um, uh, 39 years. Breath meditation has been my whole practice. Not better than worse than any other kind. It's just that's the way I've been practicing. And um, it happens to have been a way that's the way that when I read the sutta, so maybe it's my experience is, is, is coloring my, the way I approach the suttas. I mean, you know, I'm just going to say. But 
where uh, so the jhana has been more what I'm going to talk about a sutta style jhana that's not exclusive and where you can uh, by using the breath which can be very concentrating and can actually focus you in very narrowly but as the concentration deepens it can, it can it can stay narrow but it also can practice in a way that naturally opens up so you the the whole four foundations of mindfulness are just known more clearly on their own you naturally just the body is is just known it's not a practice where okay now I'm doing the body now I'm looking at my mind now I'm looking at emotions I mean you can practice that way but this is just this other way I'm going to introduce where it's more you're in the deep, deep concentration and the stillness, but it's that inclusive style. The, the states of the mind and the heart are just known very deeply. So that the jhana and the mindfulness and, and the four foundations are all sort of integrated and out of that. It's just a different way. Okay. So if you need to stretch just for... Um, um, We'll take a, f- a more full break after the sit. You'd be okay just take a shorter stretch now and then sit mm-hmm. together? Okay. <clears throat> As people are filtering in, uh, I was having a very interesting conversation with um, Hugh and with Steve. And um, I thought, Hugh, that was a great, um, if you don't mind me sharing, analogy uh, probably a pretty good analogy. You know, if you look at um, our Constitution, right? A few hundred, couple hundred years old, uh, a little more. And then you look at, um, so it was written down, so not getting into what was oral tradition or written, but it's written down. And then there's plenty of places in there that are open to interpretation. Right? And sort of, I'm not an expert on this, but I'll get it wrong, but, you know, there's kind of two main camps, right, <laughs> on how people interpret this and, the, uh, and uh, you, know, what you're, you know, if you're being um, vetted, not vetted, but um, you're at the Senate hearing for it to be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, so one of the big questions would be your judicial philosophy, and people come from different places, and it's not like they're not intelligent, well-studied, understand the arguments on both sides and all that, but people really see it one way and people see things another. And it's just like these these texts and these teachings. It's not like one's right or wrong. It's a little, the analogy might break down a little because it, you know, how I practice doesn't affect how you practice. However, in the Constitution, it's different because we all affect all of us. So maybe the analogy does kind of break down. But um. the Bible like that too: strict interpretation versus metaphorical. You never heard that joke where the God says to the Jews, do not, do not uh, eat a kid cooked in his mother's milk. And so the Jewish person was mean to separate the plates, or a separate plates, not eat milk with uh, uh, milk with meat. So don't eat a kid cooked in his mother's milk. And so the Jewish person says, well, does that mean we should wait four hours before we eat? And, uh, God says again, don't eat a kid with his mother's milk. Does that mean we should have uh, uh, separate dietary for this and that? Finally, God says, look, do it if you want. Okay. So now we're going to make a shift. 
That was a, on that humor. No, no. I think that was a nice, humorous note. But, you know, really, the good thing about that is, is that that's what... I mean, it's just, that is a funny joke. But, uh, but it, what, it, what it's saying, taking it back to practice, is, is, you know, I'm a believer in the, like, what works school of meditation. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not, I mean, I really truly have a lot of respect for, you know, we don't have to have Dharma Wars out there, right, about who's right or wrong. It's just like, you know, if we were to take a survey here, you know, and say, how many people practice like this? And how many people do these kind of practices? And how many of you do? We're all doing all kinds of practice. And we can see for ourselves the results there. I think that's really good news. I think it goes back to what Jack was saying. That's why I read his quote that said such a nice, uh, set the context for. And we're not all the same. So, of course, there's not one size fits all. All right. So, um, Please settle into uh, your posture, and we're going to have somewhere between two and four sits today. It, definitely at least two sits, and I'm a- actually going to try hard to get um, uh, uh, definitely three or four. And as I mentioned, if you're interested in this style of practice I'm talking about that doesn't separate out samadhi, mindfulness, concentration, jhana, insight, all if you're not separating those out, I'm going to give a few tips that will, will start, it's just the beginning, to start inclining the mind in that direction, that's all. That you can play with or not. And there can be very little things I'm going to say, but it's like um, if you... You know how they say in the beginning of something, a small shift over time can make a big, big effect. So as you settle in, um, if you'd like to experiment, um, I'm going to offer a style of breath meditation. Some of you may already do breath meditation. And for this first sit, the only instruction I'm going to give is to find wherever you want to connect with your breathing in the body. Where you feel it the easiest. Some of you already raised your hands. You work with the breath down at the belly. Maybe the other half of the room would tend to work with the breath as I do around the area of the nose. Whether it's near the tip of the nose, up in the sinus area, further back into the nose, wherever. There are people who teach kind of feeling the whole body breathing. If you don't have a preference, I want to suggest you put your awareness at the nose. That's only because many people find that it sharpens up the concentration. It tends to faster, I think, at the nose. But that's not true for everyone. And don't feel like you need to shift. There's no question that wherever you connect with the breathing works just fine. So don't feel like, oh, now I have to shift to the nose. It's not true. You could experiment if you want, but it's not necessary.
And then the main instruction I want to offer is to give a strong preference to the breath. What I mean by that is I said strong preference, but I didn't say cling to the breath. There will always be times when there are other experiences happening elsewhere in the body, thoughts, emotions, all kinds of experiences. And we need to let go of the breath. And in the way that many of you have been taught, just bring your mindfulness to tend to whatever else is happening. So that's always going to be the case. However, for the most part, I would say give quite strong preference to the breath. And when it, if it is time to let go of the breath, certainly just you know don't struggle with it. Just let it go, and you come back when it's time. And then I'll just offer one last piece, one last thing for this sitting. Uh, And that is right effort. Trying to find the balance between, you know, making a certain amount of effort for sure and not over-efforting or not getting stressful or tense or tight. We want to try to have a sense of ease and relaxation. You know, you do the best you can. And then from that place of being of ease, then yes, let's turn our let's put in a certain amount of effort. Just a few things before we take a bit of a longer break. Um, Any thoughts or questions? That wasn't much instruction, pretty simple, but just wanted to check in, see if any. We'll add a bit more in instruction through the day. Yeah, Hugh. What do you do do on if I'm generally practicing in my belly, but I decided to try the nostril, and on the in-breath, it's very easy to focus on the sensation of breathing in, but on the out-breath, for me, there's almost no sensation. Um, Is there, do you have suggestions about how to hold a concentration during that period where there's really almost no uh, experience? Yeah, I mean, you can still hold the concentration. It's, it's, It's exactly the same as, suppose you had sensation or, or it's even the same in the belly, if you can feel it. There's the pause in between, you know, from the in-breath, and there's a pause between the out-breath, and then the end of the out-breath, there's a pause. So in, in all breathing, there's there's a little bit of a pause. You can always work. In the same way, you just bring the mindfulness, and you have to hold the mindfulness. If you don't have an object, it can be harder. But if you're, you know, maybe the nose isn't the best if you're not getting, 
enough to work with there. Uh, maybe the belly might be fine, but can I just ask you a couple of questions? Can you, can you be a little, do you mind if I, can you be a little more specific where around the nose were you? Was it like near the tip, just inside, or was it up in the sinus area? Or? The sinus area is where I, there's almost no sensation at the tip compared to the sinus area. Okay, but you just can't get any on the out-breath, huh? You could try a few things that I can think of. One is is just to, I think as the concentration comes in, it's less of an issue. But if you're not having that much samadhi, to, to look a little closer, maybe get more still and subtler and see what happens there. Um, you have to experiment a little. I'm not 100% sure. It may be that you could still work with it and see if you can hold it in the... It actually might be quite concentrating for you because you don't have the aid of the sensations to kind of anchor you. You're having to really bring a little bit more... You know, want to be careful with this word effort because you don't want to stir yourself up. Ultimately, when you really get into states like jhana, efforting is too much doing and it's an agitation of mind and the, and, and the efforting itself drops away as it happens on its own. You probably know this, but as, as you're, as you're working, uh, until you get there, maybe bring up the effort and look a little closer and see. You might be able to develop more there. Or it may be that that's just not the good spot for you to pay attention. But if you're getting it on the end breath, Yeah, you have to experiment. I'm sorry, I can't be more specific. Thank you. Try what I would do is try it out again if you're interested to shift. Again, the the reason to shift is, I mean, people. If you were practicing with Tan Jeff, for example, Ajahn Tanisaro, he actually he has a lot of differences in how he's teaching, but it's similar in the way that people like Eugene Cash, one of the Spirit Rock teachers, like myself. There are some few teachers around who are working in this style that's not separating it, that's just sort of synthesizing them all together, not separating them out, and staying connected with the body. Now, Tan Jeff wouldn't have you stay at the nose. He would have whole, what he calls whole body breathing. Some of you know this. If you're doing whole body breathing, it doesn't mean, I just want to be clear, that you start at the nose and then move your awareness with the breath down, down, down into the lungs or belly and then move your awareness back up. It just means you open the awareness and feel kind of the whole body at once as it breathes from the belly up to the nose. So it's not like there's inherently anything better than the nose. The reason that I, and there are plenty of teachers who would want you to stay at the nose. Uh, Powak, again, who I'd mentioned would be one. Um, I just think for a lot of people it does tend to sharpen things up a lot. One of the reasons why I believe Mahasi moved people to the belly is he didn't want you to sharpen your concentration up so fast. He wanted the strength of mindfulness to build as the concentration was to slow down a little bit. But I know for a fact it all gets you there for sure. So you don't have to make a struggle about going to the nose if it's really not working. I'm glad that you mentioned the pause um, between the in and the out breath. Um, so today I stayed with a with a nose sensation, but some time ago in an interview, I asked a teacher about the pause because it seemed in my own practice to open to a spaciousness. Yeah. And perhaps I made an error in saying it was like a portal. Um, and the meditation teacher suggested that I come back to staying in the body and that I was leaving the body um, was not the path of practice. And I will say that um, 
that tethering to the body, uh, I'm, I, it, I became a bit confused. Yeah. And if you can help clarify right. that confusion, because in a way the the pause, um, it, it, I, I believe that my experience is it it expands with the length of my meditation and relaxation. Mm-hmm. But then as I pay a bit of attention to it, perhaps it expands in my mind and not in, right. in fact. Right. So let me just say something in general. Thank you. Uh, uh, you have, first of all, of course, with so many teachers out there, they're going to be coming from different places and you can get different or sometimes opposite and conflicting advice. And it just depends on the style that they t- are teaching in and everything there. So um, I tend to be in a style that kind of doesn't have one idea in mind, but it's like I know where I want to head you. Where I want to head people is uh, uh, fourth jhana. <laughs> and we're going to look at what that is. And you're at where you're at. So depending on how things are opening, I don't know. By the way, having said that, it's not like uh, you've got to get fourth jhana. You don't have to get anything. The place you want to start from is not getting anywhere. Just being present with whatever experience is actually happening. I want to be really clear because when we say get to, right? So however you want to get people where you want to head, um, you have to look at what's actually happening. I don't know. Again, I don't know the details enough. But from what you're saying, I don't know that automatically because you're not feeling some body sensations in the pause that that's any problem with that. It's only a a problem, but I mean, it's, we only want to be careful about it if we're spacing out during the pace. But if we're if we're clear and awake, and present and knowing what's happening in the moment, it's perfectly fine. And at, in fact, as the samadhi opens up, it will naturally there'll just be this clear knowing. So whenever what has ever happened in the body is known, what's happening in the mind is known. You don't have to even go looking and everything. Even just staying narrow on the breath can the knowing can open up and up. So there's two separate things. One is what we're using as the meditation object, and the second is what's happening with with the awareness. So with the meditation object, if if the, if in the space in between it's opening, it's becoming more spacious, or I, I don't know, it's you know, it could be I suppose if it's a portal and you're kind of going out and spacing out or something, maybe that's an issue. But I, I don't know, I'm not getting that necessarily from what you're saying. It may be you're just not feeling any particular body sensation in that moment. That's a technique, knowing body sensations. The goal in meditation in any style is not to know any particular experience. It's the insight. And insight is in service of a mind free of clinging. Right? Now, Awareness of the body is a big deal and important, but it's not like you have to stay with some sensation all the time in the way that I'm saying. So if, if, if you're in the pause, as long as you're not spacing out, I, I don't know that it's a problem. And then when, what it's, you know, then there's the whole question, what happens when the next breath comes or other body sensations, you know, are you disconnected from them or you're feeling them? There's a whole lot we could explore. That's good for a start. Thank you very much. So um, just two things, and then we're going to take a break. When we come back from the break, we're going to look specifically now at jhana. We'll go back from the Vasudhimaga. We'll look in the suttas, and then, and then go back to the Vasudhimaga. And then afternoon, we'll take a look at some of the important lists, uh, samadhi in Satipatthana Sutta, mindfulness of breathing on Anapanasati Sutta, and the seven factors of enlightenment in some of these lists. And again, some of the controversies. That's the real where we're heading to later in the afternoon. 
Two quick things. One is, if any of you are interested, um, right out here and on the, to the right on the table, um, I do have some copies of my book there. Um, if you're interested, you don't have to buy the book. You've got these handouts here. But, um, and it, there's, there's an envelope there. It, it gives a suggested donation. But I want to be clear, um, if, uh, if you're interested in the book and finances are an issue, don't let that. I want anyone who wants the book to get them. You can do whatever you choose. It seems to be working out. I buy them, but um, you know, I'm not losing money, and it seems to be working. So please feel free to do whatever you want if you do want a copy of the book. And the second thing is, if you're interested, also on the, t- on the counter up here is a sign-up list. I have an email announcement list. And um, uh, it's used very infrequently, but it's basically, um, for example, um, um, I'm starting to teach some retreats I'm organizing on my own, and they're actually in this style. We haven't gotten into the details of it, but I teach b- uh, breath meditation in a style that it's, you could call them jhana retreats, but they're also uh, mindfulness insight retreats where they're synthesized into, into it's not separating them out. Uh, so if you just want to find out when any of those happens, you can always put your, pop your name on the list. Um, so let's take, let's see, it's 10 after 11. I think I'll, if, I'm going to ring the bell in 10 minutes.